You're listening to Mile High Report Radio with your hosts, Adam Malnati and Ian St. Clair. Get involved with the Denver Broncos conversation at milehighreport.com. And now it's time to get to work. A very exciting uh, Mile High Report radio podcast today as Ian and I are joined by Andrew Mason. Uh, he is a co-host of First and Ten at Ten on Orange and Blue 760. Great show. Uh, and also the senior digital reporter at DenverBroncos.com. So you can see him in many places. But uh, I will just start by saying when I want Broncos news, the, the first place I, I look to is... Andrew Mason. He's got uh, great information, great insight, and heading into training camp, there's no better place for the news and information that you might need as a Denver Broncos fan. So, uh, Mace, thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure. I'm flattered by those uh, words. If I have to do a contract renegotiation, I might need you as my agent. I could do that. <laughs> I, I could totally do that. <laughs> but so uh, let's jump. Let's yeah, jump right it. in, Mace. Uh, we're about. 10 days away from the opening of training camp. Mm-hmm. And I was on with you and your co-host, Steve Atwater, last Friday. So I'll, I'll ask, I'll, I'll turn, I'll, I'll flip it around on you and, and ask you a question that you asked me. Who are some of the guys that you are looking forward to seeing um, who could have an impact over the course of the, the two weeks of camp heading into the preseason? Well, I'll tell you, even though um... – He's not exactly below the radar guy. I'm really excited to see Jake Butt out there, full speed, full contact. Um, what I saw from him in OTAs, just he was someone who was gradually getting better. Uh, it looked like he was able to 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 do more and kind of had more confidence in himself as that time went on. And and by the time he got to the end of the OTAs, OTAs was really emerging as a key red zone threat for whatever quarterback uh, was throwing him the ball. I want to see if he can make that translate when the pads go on. And, you know, looking at the Broncos tight end production last year, I mean, you had, you know, a collective and it wasn't bad in terms of yardage, but uh, you wanted more touchdowns from that. And I think when I look at how the Broncos have struggled in the red zone, the last couple of years, I don't think it's a coincidence that their red zone offense hasn't been the same uh, since Julius Thomas left. They had a decent year from Owen Daniels in 2015, but really, I think the tight end position is key to the, the Broncos' red zone efforts, and is a big reason why they've struggled in the red zone the last couple of years. So, if Jake Butt can make what he make what he's done translate to being in full pads. He's got a chance to really change the trajectory and the outlook of that position and give the Broncos a red zone threat, kind of like Kyle Rudolph was for Case Keenum. So I'll start with him. Cortland Sutton and Deshaun Hamilton, very impressed with the two of them, both as players and as people, most importantly. Um, I think they're going to have a pretty feisty competition for the number three receiver spot. Uh, on the defensive side, really excited to see Josie Jewell, what he can do. I think full pads are going to enhance uh, what Josie Jewell does. Uh, my question on him is uh, what he can do in pass coverage, but I think against the run, he's going to be in the right place at the right time. And if he can bring just enough in pass coverage, then he's got a chance to to play a little bit more than I think some people expect. And then I want to see 
how Brendan Langley and Isaac Yadam look at cornerback. Now, Langley, to his credit, he's been hanging out with Chris Harris Jr., hanging out with Bradley Roby, getting extra coaching sessions in uh, away from the Broncos, both before organized workouts and then in the last few weeks. So I like the fact that he's doing that, but at the same time, you got to go out there on the field and make it translate. Uh, he's got the physical tools. Uh, I think he's just got to bring the whole whole package together, and if he can – uh, he can make that cornerback depth look a lot better than it does right now. Right now, it's so unproven, so you, there's just a lot of question marks there behind the the number, the top two cornerbacks. And if one of those young guys could really step it up, I think that would that would go a long way toward answering question. And I think it'd be it would be crucial for the defense because you know right now as it stands with Chris and Bradley, teams are going to throw at whoever that number three cornerback is, whether it's Brock or one of the young guys. They better be ready. Okay, so you don't need an agent. Just people need to listen to you speak. You'll be fine on your renegotiation stuff. <laughs> I would be obsolete in that meeting. Uh, I, I want to go back to what you said about Jake Butt because it, it raises a question, at least I'm sure not just in my mind, but in, in the, the minds of, of most of the fans out there. Is the production at tight end, is that a result of poor quarterback play over the last couple of years? Or would you say that maybe the struggles at tight end were, were deeper than just Trevor Simeon didn't get the job done or, you know, you had the Paxton Lynch, Brock Osweiler, Trevor Simeon trifecta that wasn't quite up to par. So is, is that maybe the issue with the tight ends, or is it that they needed a better tight end? I'd say it's a little of column A, the quarterback, but more of column B, uh, the tight end position. And the reason I say that is because you there were some moments where you thought, okay, A.J. Derby, here's a guy who could emerge, and he could be a threat. And Trevor Simeon was finding him. I, I flash back to the uh, the Titans game in December 2016, for example, and you know he and Derby they're starting to get some good timing. And of course, late in the game, when you've got a potential game tying drive right there at the end, Derby puts the ball on the ground. Right. And then you look at another fumble that he had against the Chargers out in Los Angeles last year, and that was as deflating a play for the team as there was at any point last year. I mean, you could really you could really feel the air kind of go out of the Broncos' sails on offense at that point. The defense managed to make the stand, but uh, I think the frustration that was, starting to, that was starting to build for the team, really uh, one of the moments that brought it was uh, Derby's fumble. And of those, path, of those tight ends last year and the year before, Derby was the best pass catcher. He, you know, obviously was not much as a blocker, but he was the best pass catcher. If he had displayed better ball security, I think we'd be talking about a completely different scenario uh, from the from the tight ends and, and and what you're thinking. So there was a willingness to find those guys. I think on Trevor Simeon's part. But if the if if you're going to have a high fumble rate, you're going to lose the trust of the coaches. You're going to lose the trust uh, of the quarterback as well. So yeah, I put some of it on on Trevor Simeon and and, and Brock Osweiler and Paxton Lynch and their struggles. But I think that more consistent play and ball security from the tight end position would have given those quarterbacks a security blanket that they were willing to use if they protected the football. So let's flip it around. We mentioned the players that you think will will stand out and you look forward to seeing. Mm-hmm. I know the answer to this, but who needs to have a strong camp? Who is on the I guess the bubble, so to speak. Well, I'd say at running back, 
Devontae Booker needs a good needs a very good camp. Now he's the favorite to be the number one running back because of his experience. But at the same time, looking at that group, it's a it's a group that's waiting for somebody to emerge. It's a talented group, but someone's going to be on the outside looking in when all is said and done. And it's so wide open, it could be any one of those running backs. Even the veterans like Booker and D'Angelo Henderson need to be on their P's and Q's over the next several weeks, or they could find themselves on the outside looking in. Offensive line, you want to see Garrett Bowles grow, but at the same time, hey, it's he's going to be the starting left tackle, uh, barring injury, going into the season. The guy I'm looking at that really needs to have a good camp, I think, is Menelik Watson. Now, they've worked with him at guard uh, as opposed to tackle where he was last year. But you get into training camp, you're going to have Connor McGovern there at guard as well. They know what Connor McGovern that can do. They found that out late last season. He can be a, a solid right guard for you. And I think it's Menelik Watson, if he wants to start or even be on the roster, I think he has to have an outstanding camp. It's kind of wide open for some backup spots. Max, Max Garcia uh, battling for the swing guard spot. He's got to have a good camp, I think, to solidify his his place. Go on the defensive side. Demarcus Walker, I think he, his roster spot is pretty well secure because there's a specific situational role that he can have in terms of being a sub-package pass rusher from the inside, but he still needs to have a good camp. He showed some flashes in OTAs, but – can he make that translate to when the pads go on and things get more physical? If he's able to do that, then he's going to be in good shape, but he still has to uh, demonstrate that. And then looking at the safety position, it's interesting because you've obviously got Darian Stewart and Justin Simmons there, the starters, but behind them, Sua Cravens, Will Parks, Jamal Carter, who they like a lot. It's going to be an interesting competition there on the back end for those roster spots. When I did the 50, my 53-man projection, I had the Broncos keeping five safeties, but if they have to go heavy at another spot and only keep four safeties, then you're talking about someone that they like that could be on the outside looking in. There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, and the thing is, after 5-11, and 11, there are no sacred cows on this roster. You've got to you've got to go out there and earn. I think it's going to be a fascinating camp because it's so wide open. Because you can't really uh, look back look back at a lot of players and say, well, you know, you did enough to be secure. When you have a five and eleven season and you make some significant schematic changes on offense and you make some significant coaching changes on the staff, uh, everyone's kind of starting from zero a little bit. So I think I think we'll see we'll see some guys move up and down the depth charts. Uh, if not from day to day, certainly from week to week. And you can go back to OTAs and look at how they were using the running backs. And you saw Philip Lindsay getting first team reps from time to time, D'Angelo Henderson, Royce Freeman getting some reps with the ones. And that I think just reveals how wide open the competition is going to be at a lot of positions and how this is not a roster where I think you can put as many names in Sharpie to use Seth Davis's parlance as you would in some other years. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the running backs because you brought them up, and it's it's a really interesting group this year. You you mentioned Devontae Booker as the as he's the veteran now, right? And D'Angelo Henderson. Uh, do you see the Bronx? Do they have to have a bell cow? Do they have to have a guy who takes over, or can Royce Freeman and Philip 
Philip Lindsay and those guys kind of come in and have that running back by committee. I'm sort of envisioning because I would love to see it like this, that New Orleans Saints style with Alvin Kamara and Marky, right? I see you laughing at me, of course. That's what I want. I want, I want that in Denver, right? Doesn't everybody? Hey, I want the committee. And in, part of the reason I want the committee is I look at this group of backs and they have different skill sets, but I don't see one of them kind of breaking clearly away from the others just yet. That could change. So I see how the committee has helped the Patriots, how it helped the Eagles putting the right guy in the right situation at the right time to make a play. It kept everybody fresh, kept the defenses guessing a little bit. So I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the running back by committee. The guy who would disagree with you is my radio partner, Steve Atwater, who is driving the bell cow bus. He wants to see one running back carrying the freight and kind of psychologically. And I've mentioned this to Steve, I think part of that is because the most successful years of Steve's career came when you had that one guy, whether it was Terrell Davis uh, from 90, from 95 onward with when T, when Steve Atwater was there, or even as a rookie, Steve had Bobby Humphrey, who the Broncos picked uh, with a first round supplemental selection. And Humphrey was a big reason why the Broncos got to Super Bowl 24 that year. So I think his experience says bell cow back, looking at what's working for some other teams that don't have a Le'Veon Bell or don't have an Ezekiel Elliott. I think the committee approach is the way to go when you've got a bunch of guys clustered close together and then hope maybe you're finding one or two that kind of emerge as more every down guys. In that case, I think you'd be talking about uh, Devontae Booker and Royce Freeman in all likelihood. But even if it's something where it's the Patriots where one, one game a guy is – carrying 20 times and the next game, Oh, the matchup doesn't work. He's inactive. That'd be fine by me too. And that might be the best way to get use of a guy like say Philip Lindsay or D'Angelo Henderson, both of whom have some electricity catching passes in space and making plays downfield. Does Steve have a favorite for who he thinks should be the bell cow or one that he thinks will rise to the top? Well, I think right now, just the experience of Devonte Booker probably has him, a top Steve's list, but, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, Royce Freeman at times looked very impressive in OTAs. And I look at Royce Freeman and I think he's the one that maybe he doesn't do any one thing better than anybody else in the group. But he maybe if you're kind of ranking the skills of running backs, he would be uh, top two to top three in every, in every skill. Whereas say Philip Lindsay might be the top as far as a guy who can do things in space and uh, and turn a, a, a screen pass into a big play, but he may not be the guy that you want on an every down base. I think Royce Freeman probably has the best all-around skill set. And then I look at Dave Williams, the seventh-round pick, and he's a little bit of a sleeper. I really want to see what he does in pads, but when he got out there at times during OTAs, and he got outside and he got into a full gallop. He was able to turn you know, a little three or four yard stretch play into something that went 25, 30 yards upfield. So I really want to see what he does. And if he does well, then that's another guy who has a pretty complete all around skill set. Again, not the best at anything, but just is pretty good in all aspects. So touching on all the the offensive stuff that that you've mentioned the the tight end the yep. the offensive line the running backs the receivers 
with the addition of Case Keenum, what is the expectation for this offense? Well, the first thing with Case Keenum and the offense is don't turn the ball over so dadgum much. And Keenum is obviously the Barry impression. Yeah, that was nice. I was just going to (laughs) say. Yeah. And he's – and I think that's job number one for him. Now, you don't want to go too much into focusing on protecting the football. You've got to be able to uh, take some chances, and that's something that Bill Musgrave mentioned to us when we talked to him after one of the minicamp practices last month. But protecting the football is job one. And the the stat that I've been throwing out there lately is that if you take the Broncos quarterbacks last year, Trevor Simeon, Brock Osweiler, Paxton Lynch, they were responsible for 26 giveaways, interceptions, and fumbles lost. Case Keenum had eight. And if you had that sort of performance from Case Keenum, in 2018 in terms of protecting the football and not having giveaways, as long as there wasn't a, 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 a rampaging case of fumbleitis going through uh, the receiving tight end and running back core, uh, you'd probably be talking about a team that was in position to be back in the playoffs again. And so that's why I think protecting the football is job number one for uh, that for the for the offense and then beyond and then I think they can do that with Case Keenum even if he has more giveaways than last year I don't think he's going to go back to where he where he was with the Rams I think he settles somewhere in between and that's still going to represent a lot of improvement for this for this team so that's something I expect and then in terms of points per game you can get if you can get those points per game up to say 21 22 um, as long as you get an answer at number three cornerback. I think you have an equation that will allow you to win nine or 10 games and be right there, at least in the playoff conversation until the end. So it's a positive outlook. Uh, Is, is the defense going to, is how much drop off is there going to be? I I guess that's really what what I want to know because you're losing a keep to lead, but Mm -hmm. you could see some decline in him. I think even last year, Um, not a lot. I don't, I don't want him to come steal my chains or anything like that, but (laughs) a, a little bit. And then also, uh, you know, you have some some interesting additions as well. Is is this defense going to be as good? You, you mentioned the third, you know, the number three corner. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be as good as last year? Can it be better than last year? What what's your feeling on that? I think it can be a bit better on the whole. I think there are some things that may be worse, but I think the key thing that can be better is uh, is is pass rush and the sack rate in particular. Last year, Broncos went from being uh, number one in the league in sack rate in 2015, number five in 2016, uh, down to 17th last year. And and that's not something that's going to work for this team. So I think I, I think they they get they can improve the pass rush with Bradley Chubb. I think the thing you've got to do is you've got to force opposing offenses to take more chances. Some of that is on the defense. Some of that go back to the offense, turning the ball over and uh, putting opposing offenses on short fields and putting the Broncos into a deficit game after game after game. So if you can avoid those early giveaways, not be digging yourself a 7, 10, 14-point hole in the first half, then I think your defense is going to look a lot better because the opponents are going to be forced to take more chances than they did last year and taking chances, you know, throwing deep downfield from time to time, 
that means you're giving Chubb and Vaughn Miller and Shaq Barrett uh, an extra second or so to get to the quarterback. And then you're getting more sacks. You're getting more pressures, forcing throws that are errant. And maybe uh, Justin Simmons can contract some of those things down. So that's kind of what I'm looking at from this defense. I think some of it's going to be what they can do on their own to get there, both the, the individual units on the defense. But believe it or not, some, some of this is going to be on the offense simply uh, not putting it and special teams as well because you have to include Isaiah McKenzie and his fumbles in this not putting the defense in those early holes on the, those short fields game after game we try not to include Isaiah McKenzie in things that's just that's just a, a, a show issue I think <laughs> I think a lot of bad memories for people uh, when it comes to Isaiah McKenzie on on 2017 to his credit uh, just watching him in OTAs He's been doing the doing the extra work with the jugs. He's been doing the extra work ca- catching passes after practice, and you just hope that it can translate for him because he does have some electricity to him if he can figure out the ball security things. But that being said, if he's still fumbling the ball this summer, then I don't think that Tom McMahon, special teams coordinator, is going to be very patient with him at all. Speaking of the special teams. How much of an impact is Marquette King going to have on this team? I mean, obviously, he has a big impact on the social media front, and he definitely (laughs) knows how to troll Raiders fans and the Raiders. But what kind of an impact will he be able to have for this team, and especially the defense in terms of setting up field position? Well, I'm rather proud of how Marquette King trolls Raiders fans, considering how I troll Chiefs fans, so I can very true a little bit, a, li- a little bit to that. Go get him. Well, I, I think he'll have a, a pretty profound impact uh, on the special teams because if you look at him, even when you take out his numbers uh, in games played at altitude, both the games in Denver and also I include uh, when the Raiders were down in Mexico City at I believe that's about set about seventy two hundred feet, if I'm not mistaken, down there. But even if you take those numbers out. You can see over the course of his career that the key indicators for him are generally uh, on the ascendancy. So I think if he continues that trend, then having with having half of his games in Denver, I think you're talking about someone who can have who can maybe have anywhere from a you know, from a ten to a a twenty yard impact on field position, especially in home games compared to where you were last year with Riley Dixon. And it's one of those things that it may not sound like much until you really kind of dive into it and look and say, okay, let's say he's got four punts and he's having an impact of, of 10 to 20 yards. Let's say it's on the high side, 20 yards. You're talking about an impact of five yard of five yards per possession. And that's something that can be huge, can be huge. And also if he's getting a lot of hang time on his punts, which is something he can definitely do, then he's going to ease the burden on, on the coverage units as well. Remember, you don't have Cody Latimer. You don't have Benny Fowler. So, and Jordan Taylor is, I imagine, he'll be, he'll be on the pup into the regular season is my guess. So you're going to have some new guys that are working as your, as your gunners, and the best friend of those guys as they get up to speed is going to be a punter who can just blast the hell out of the football like Marquette King. Who, who, who said punting can't be exciting? We're excited about punting. It's good stuff. <laughs> if hey, if you're if you can get it down inside the ten the ten yard line consistently at the north at the north end zone where the stands are closed and people are going crazy, then it can it can be an exciting moment. And what I'm looking forward to, and I hope this happens, is 
if Marquette King gets, you know, a 55-yard blast that goes out of bounds, say, at the five-yard line or just past that, and then he goes to the sideline and the, the first person to greet him before going out in the field to do his work on defense is Vaughn Miller. I would love to see that. Imagine starting a possession with the two, the two of them in a little bit of a dance-off. Imagine how geeked up the home crowd would get. That That's the kind of thing that could be exciting. And also, in terms of getting the Broncos back to where they were defensively, uh, Marquette King is another weapon who can help that out. I'm had, geeked up thinking about it. I just had a Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy moment. Dance off, bro. Me and you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that. <laughs> And I just had a flashback, a flashback to the '80s and, and early '90s with with Mike Horan, the left-footed punter, mm-hmm. who seemed to do that consistently, pinning teams in uh, inside the twenty and setting up the defense to have uh, good field position to go against their the opposing offenses. Yeah, and I think there was a time in the mid two thousands as well that they were really hoping that Todd Sauerbrunn could be that guy, but the problem was. He could blast it long, but he didn't always have the hang time by the time he got to the Broncos. I think if the Broncos had had Todd Sauerbrunn from a few years earlier in his prime, uh, that's the kind of thing you would have seen what you're hoping to see from Marquette King. But they get Sauerbrunn toward the end. Of course, he had the suspension, uh, off-field issues as well. And then, of course, we we don't want to remember, but we do remember uh, kicking a Devin Esther. Uh, I was I was at that game. Oh. I was I was in the stands. I was very high up. My buddy of mine said, "Hey, I got tickets. Let's go." I, and and I was screaming from very far away. Apparently, nobody could hear me. I don't I don't know. My voice was drowned out by the the noise of of all the other fans. But just screaming, "Don't kick it to him!" And they just kept kicking him the football. It was yeah. it was brutal. That was a brutal game. And that pretty much ended that season. That loss, and it it didn't have to be that way. I mean, it was. What it was 34 20 late, and then they just fell apart. And they, there was a block punt, too. I mean, it was basically it was the worst game a punter slash kickoff guy could ever have. I don't remember the ride home. That's that's how upsetting it was. Oh, <laughs> too much old style. Uh, yeah, a little you could call it that old style, little little PBR. They yeah, like their PBR out here. One question I wanted to ask you, Mace, is for all the fans listening, when they get to the bump, and if you were sitting with them and, and you're you're getting ready to, to watch practice, mm-hmm. what would be your recommendation to how they watch practice? What should they look for? How should they watch practice with the kind of analytical eye that you have? I would tell – I would first ask them, did you bring your binoculars? I hope you did. Because you're sitting on the hillside, and if it's a day when you've got the O-linemen going against uh, the D-linemen and the edge rushers, then you want to pull out the binoculars and be watching the far side from where you're sitting and be watching that drill. Because that's where you're going to – you end up finding out an awful lot, especially about the tackles – and the edge rushers. I think uh, last year, for example, uh, Garrett Bowles, you could tell that his head was spinning in those drills. And it gives you a chance to appreciate Von Miller, but also I think you're going to get to find out where Bradley Chubb stands and where Jeff Holland, an undrafted rookie, stands. So I would st- I'd start with that. Make sure you, you get a chance to, to take that in. And also I think 
it's natural when you're watching full team periods to focus on uh, the skill guys and what they're doing. And sometimes you can forget about the you can overlook the the work of the O and D lines. But if you got if you watch those one on one drills, you're gonna have a pretty good sense of where everyone stands uh, on the offensive and defensive fronts. So I would I'd start with that. I would say take particular note of who is lining up on the first units on special teams because more often than not, if a player that's kind of on the roster fringe is working his way up to the first unit of multiple special teams units, then that's a guy that they probably expect to make the roster. Something like that kind of ends up being a difference between a guy who's on the 53 and off the 53. Um, I would also say, hey, you know, watch the coaches and 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 watch who they talk to individually because if they're really coaching a guy hard individually, it's not it's not really a bad thing for the player. It shows that they're really invested in that player and wanting him to succeed. Whereas, you know, some guys, if it's something that kind of happens subconsciously, but some guys. If everyone knows, okay, this guy is, you know, a, a guy who's probably not going to make the roster. He's probably not going to be able to help us. He's not. Maybe that player isn't going to get as much individual attention from a coach as another one. Another one would. So I, those are things that I would pay attention to. And then also, when you watch the quarterbacks, and obviously everyone's eyes is going are going to go onto them. Um, watch, you know, kind of monitor their decision making, and you know. Understand that just because the quarterback completes a pass doesn't mean it was a good it was a good play because maybe you know it's, maybe you took that check down but you had Emmanuel Sanders having beat Tremaine Brock on the outside on the outside deep on a post and the quarterback didn't see him and that that's a bad play for the quarterback and and also take things like quarterback scrambles with a grain of salt because. You know, if the quarterback is making play a play with his feet, that's well and good. But that's not necessarily what you want him to do. Did he miss an open? Did he miss an open receiver and choose to scramble instead? So, you know, kind of look at those things that aren't as obvious as completion, incompletion, interception, that sort of thing. I hope everybody had a a piece of paper and a pencil out, and we're taking notes on that because that's, I mean, <laughs> seriously, I I probably would show up and just kind of be like an idiot like a, you know just kind of look around and not know what I was looking at <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time when I was a kid I would go watch the uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in training camp back uh, in the late 80s and early 90s and that was actually a really good setup because even though Florida gets you know hot as blazes in the summertime they had a grandstand that was at, that was covered and so you could sit there and you'd be in the shade with a drink, and uh, you get little breeze coming off of the Hillsborough River, and it was actually pretty pleasant to watch. Even and then, of course, those poor guys down the field were sweating like crazy. The other thing I got from those days, guys, is this: when you're watching a team go against itself, you sometimes have to consider the quality or the lack thereof of what they're facing before you go too crazy and saying, oh, this guy's going to be a great player. I mean, I can tell you summer after summer with those bad Bucks teams and go down to training camp and little old 12, 13, 14-year-old me would be optimistic about, uh, about 
this seventh round pick. And I had to then say, oh, step away and say, well, wait, who is he doing this against? He's doing it against a bad team. And I kind of think back last year, some of the things we saw that were working in training camp were a product of what turned out to be a pretty substandard team overall. So I just kind of sometimes just if you see something going right, it might be it might be good for the for the player who's making the play, but it might also be an indication that something is off and amiss uh, with the player that he's doing it against. That's something you can especially see when receivers go against cornerbacks. And sometimes if a corner if a receiver is making a great play, it can often be because the corner made a mistake. That is excellent advice. That's good stuff. What uh, I, I just because I got to know what is the day? So I, if I were your shadow for a day during training camp, mm-hmm. what does what Andrew Mason's day look like for for one typical day of training camp? I know every day is a little different, but just one typical day for you, how does it how does it pan out? Let's see. Uh, it starts with my dogs waking me up at 6.15 <laughs> to be fed. Um, and then I try to get a little more sleep and make sure, you know, make sure that my six-year-old is taken care of before her child care arrives. And then get down to camp. Usually I'll pop on um, – I'll pop on the radio show, uh, Columbus and Lindahl on 760. So I'll pop on with uh, Andy and Tyler for a few minutes and, and talk about some things. And then, uh, then I'll start getting my notes out, start going through stuff. And then this year we're going to be broadcasting live during camp. And uh, if all goes according to plan, we're going to be up either on the plaza, on the hillside, or maybe overlooking it. So I'll be sitting there doing a broadcast while also like furiously taking notes as we're doing the broadcast. And it'll for people who can't make it out to practice, uh, our show is going to be kind of the closest thing to being there. We're not going to be doing a straight play-by-play, but we'll be letting you know, you know, which guys are doing well. And then, of course, Steve has a pretty discerning eye, especially on defensive back play, so he'll be able to tell you which guys are are struggling as well. And I'm sure, I'm sure he'll do that in his very kind way. So then, practice ends. We run down. We will get some inter- we'll get some interviews right after practice. That goes to about 1:30 or so. Um, oh, and I also, also I forgot, at the start of training camp practice every day, DenverBroncos.com will be live for about 15 to 30 minutes, and we're going to have a show that kind of recaps the previous day, tells you what to expect on this day. I'll be on there. Steve will be on there. We'll probably have some other orange and blue radio guys on there as well. Uh, we'll have some media guests. So that's my plug for that, DenverBroncos.com, 930 every day at practice. But then after practice – grab a quick lunch, and then usually just I find a quiet spot and I start kind of writing my recap of practice, start going through the notes, uh, this and that. And you know, you, you, you know about those reports that I file every day, and then that'll be up late in the afternoon. Uh, usually there's a couple more radio hits interspersed over the course of, of the day uh, before I'm done. And then if it's a day with an afternoon walkthrough, I'll go uh, watch some of that. Usually it's in the field house. Sometimes it's on the field. And, and that gives you a clue as to what to expect the next day in terms of you know what, what they're planning formationally, that sort of thing. Are guys moving up, guys moving down? Also, if players are hurt, that walkthrough can give you a better indication of where the depth chart really stands because a player that's hurt might not practice, but he'll be in the walkthrough. So you can see him out there doing his thing. And then after that, just kind of wrap up some things. And uh, usually I'm heading home about 7 p.m., exhausted, ready for the next day. That's it. It's... Did you just describe the perfect job? I think you just described the perfect job, <laughs> except for backup quarterback. 
backup quarterback is actually the perfect <laughs> job because if you can just stand there and hold a clipboard your whole life, I could I, I could do that. That's 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 what I want. What but are you doing? When you have to go clipboard. in. Did you guys ever see Necessary Roughness a long time ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when, when the back goes in the first game, Popkey. <laughs> Blow the whistle. Blow the whistle. <laughs> I just always think of Brock Osweiler not being ready to have his, you know, to get out there. And Peyton Manning just heads out there because Brock Osweiler wasn't ready. I mean, you got to be ready, I guess. That would have been me. I'd have been like, wait, what? Well, do you guys remember back in 06, uh, the last game of the regular season, and Jay Cutler gets hurt, and uh, Jake Plummer came in? And Plummer admitted this. This was in uh, the, the Stefan Fatz's book, um, A Few Seconds of Panic, that was about you know being a kicker in that, in that preseason. Uh, but he also talked about the team that year. And Jake admitted he really in the book that he really hadn't done a lot of preparation, but he thought that he would go out there and do well because he was just kind of playing, you know, footloose and and fancy free. And he got the Broncos in position for a score, but then uh, Jay Cutler uh, came back in even though he was concussed. If you were playing that game today, probably Jay Plummer would have finished it out. That's right. I do remember yep. that. Those those were interesting times in in Broncos history for sure. It's never boring around here. I mean, <laughs> I think exactly about this. True. The Broncos can, when they have an eight and eight season, like say two thousand nine, for example, it's not a garden variety eight and eight. It's starting six and zero, and then having the whole thing come apart over the last ten games. Or they go eight and eight in twenty eleven, and it's the Tebow year. Right. Nothing is ever done quietly in Broncos country. It's whether it's a a soaring high or a loud or, or a crushing low. Everything comes with a thunderclap. That's just the way it is. Some teams are boring. The Broncos are not. Yeah, you could go back to, as far as just last year with all the issues, you know, with the with the uh, with the quarterback situation, and then uh-huh. you get, you know, you had a keep to leave getting in fights. <laughs> oh yeah, it wasn't guard. It, I've seen some. Like I was with Carolina in eighty in in oh nine, and they went eight and eight. That was a very quiet eight and eight. The Broncos don't do seasons like that at all. What are some of the moments that stand out for you in the time that you've covered the Broncos? What regard you mentioned Tim Tebow? There's Peyton Manning. I there's the 05 season where they where Champ Bailey has the basically hundred yard interception return against Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. What are some of the moments that stand out to you, whether good or bad, over the course of you covering this organization? Well, it's by no. This is by no means a list one through ten, for example. But I'll just say, you mentioned the Tebow season. I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to be covering uh, this game. If I'm, you know, but if I'm still writing about football twenty, twenty-five years from now, writing about it, talking about it, whatever, I know that I will still never see a season like 2011. That was just that wacky. That sees that many circumstances that you simply cannot explain. And so much had to go right for them to be eight and eight, and it did. Every you know, you know Marion Barber going out of bounds in, in the Bears game, and you can even look at the fact that the Bears decided to keep playing Caleb Haney when they were sitting there with a uh, uh, Josh McCown, who almost certainly could have gotten them home uh, with a winning season, perhaps if they'd played him. But for whatever reason, they stuck with Haney, and. That helped give the Broncos that win. So just so many things that, you know, it was 
stupidity on, on other teams' parts. It was, you know, just, you know, pulling off the throttle. So much had to go right that year and did that it was just inexplicable. Um, you mentioned the 05 season. I'm not sure I've ever covered a team that was more together as one unit that, than that 05 team. And that, that was a one-for-all, all-for-one group. It had the right had the right mix of personalities. You and you all the other thing that helped that is you had veterans that were getting close to their last legs, but they really kind of were they were healthy and they were feeling it. They were in a groove. I'm thinking of guys like Tom Nalen, for example. Uh, Rod Smith had an outstanding year that year. That was his last thousand yard season. And that was that was a team that probably deserved a better fate than it had. But in the parlance of John Fox, picked a bad day to have a bad day. Um, I, the, the Manning years, obviously, you're, you're sitting there and you, you had to kind of remind yourself while you're watching it, this isn't normal in a good way. This, this is something beyond what you could imagine offenses doing on a, on a weekly basis. And it was the thing that I look back on with Manning, it's not just him, it's his ability to elevate everybody. It's the fact that you had, you know, the blockers, like they kind of go that extra mile downfield to clear a path for Demarius uh, and Wes Welker and Julius Thomas and whoever got the football. Everyone just on the offensive side, everyone was just um, was just on a higher level than you could have you imagined. And then I mean, I just I sometimes think, boy, if you could have put that 2012 defense even with the tw- with the 2013 offense, uh, you might have had a team that ran the table. Um, but you know, it didn't all come together until 2015, of course. Um, How about the Tim Tebow offense with the 1977 defense? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Hang on, let me let me reach uh, to the to the far end of the spectrum on one side, and then the far uh, end of the spectrum on the other side. See if I can cram those things together. Well, the funny thing about '77, you know, it was after that year that you had profound changes in the rules. Uh, the, I've heard some football historians call the mid '70s the dead ball era of the of the NFL, of the NFL, and that's a term that I like to use as well because offenses just were stagnant and it was so stagnant that they had to, they, they made rules changes because of guys like uh, uh, Mel Blunt and even to a lesser degree, a guy like Louie Wright on the outside, they based, they had to open things up because the defenses were just crushing pun intended with the orange crush, everything that came their way. So, yeah, that, that would have been interesting. There would have been, there would have been more of those, Seven three three nothing games. I mean, remember the the last game of the 2011 season on New Year's Day 2012. That was a seven three game. That yeah, was, it was. baseball. That was that may have been the most boring NFL game I've ever covered. <laughs> I have to say that. So it was boring once. That's what you're saying. There was one time where it was. It boring. was one, but even then, <laughs> it, the game was boring. But you're starting to scoreboard watch because remember San Diego That's had to right. be open. That's right, and then. And then it's it's seven three for the longest time in that game, and I remember there was a moment where I I think it was like in the fourth quarter, early in the fourth quarter, I said nobody's scoring anymore in this game, and it just it was clear that this was going to be the final 
Nothing was going to happen from this point forward. And at that point, I start, I, I basically really start keeping one eye on the Chargers Raiders. And then you know, we get word. Uh, actually, I think we got word when the media was in the locker room um, after the game that it had gone final. And basically reporters were kind of, you know, I think a couple of players were informed by reporters that the, the Raiders had lost and the Chargers um, had won and the Broncos were in the playoffs. But, yeah, that was – yeah, so even a boring game has something interesting. Now. That's that's the Broncos. A, boor, a boring game has something interesting. Another boring game for a long time, it was the Tebow start in Miami. I literally – I was actually starting to doze off early in the fourth quarter at 15 in the press box. <laughs> I am not kidding. I'm, I can feel myself fading. I mean, it's a warm day. It's kind of nice. And, you know, it's like, uh, and then stuff starts happening in, in the last six minutes. That, I guess that just show, goes to show that the Broncos as a franchise can only do boring but for so long, and then something mesmerizing has to happen. If you get boring, it ends with insane. Yes. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's why we're Bronco fans, right? You didn't. You didn't sign up for this for a for an even for an even ride. It's the roller coaster. It's the highs and the lows. You know the physical roller coaster that you go on down at Elixes. You know what? You, you might feel a little bit dizzy when you get off, but generally you're no worse for the wear. You had a fun thrill ride. That's what for me. That's how I view football and sports. It's a fairly harmless thrill ride. You have your ups and your downs. Sometimes you know. Sometimes you feel like. Uh, you, know, you can't take it anymore, but then the ride stops. Oh, okay, I'm fine. None the worse for the wear. Move on to the next thing in life. That's that's how I view a, a, a really good game, a roller coaster. The 2015 season for mm-hmm. fans was one of those where it it's like it, it, it's a, it, it's extreme. It, 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 you go up, you go down. I mean, obviously there was a lot of ups for that season, but it, it seemed like there was the blood, the blood pressure moments were always there for the fans. What was it like as someone covering those games in the press box and then being around that team? Well, I remember the fan panic on social media on a weekly basis and it got a little out of control. I remember that's like, okay, your team's winning everyone, but because let's take the offense, which was really struggling uh, for long stretches, and there were there were moments like in 2013. It was a shock when the offense didn't score a touchdown. Well, you got to have moments in 2015 that was the exact opposite. It was a shock when there was a touchdown scored. Uh, they they went through a pretty long dry spell. Uh, in October, while they were still on their way to going six and zero, the thing about that was you saw just enough moments from that offense. We, I knew how good the defense was, and if I if it wasn't clear before overtime in Cleveland, that's when it, it really hit me that this defense can do whatever it wants. Is because that overtime, you recall that. Peyton through the interception, the Browns take over at the 39, and literally they have to go four yards to be in, in reasonable field goal range. And that was where the defense, which didn't have DeMarcus Ware, didn't have Shane Ray, both of them were hurt. It Basically they said, not on our watch. We are not losing this game no matter what. And they drive the Browns back 
15 plus yards just like that and forced in the punt that it was that moment that told me that this defense it was beyond just really good it was something special that could define that team and then on the offensive side there were just enough glimpses of the old greatness late in the Kansas City game the entire Green Bay game that I knew in the back of my mind that if the team really needed something there was a good chance it could find it and lo and behold you look at the moments uh, beyond that, the, the both Patriots games, the first one uh, on Thanksgiving weekend when Broncos come back from 14 down in the fourth quarter, when Demarius is having that awful game, he's dropping everything, and then Osweiler drops that pass up the right sideline to get him going on that late on that drive late in regulation. And then in the playoffs, getting you know the big play by Benny Fowler on that third down, breaking tackles left and right. You knew that that offense, it wasn't great, but when it really mattered, it was going to find just enough. And then defense just complemented that by being so overpowering that they weren't going to allow the Broncos to lose a, a big game. Actually, I mean, really the only time the defense really let down that year was in Pittsburgh in the second half when it seemed like a couple of calls don't go their way in terms of pass interference, and all of a sudden everyone kind of melted, melted down a little bit. But then you look back at the season as a whole and say, well, they needed that moment because the next day, you know, Kubiak has a team meeting, addresses everybody, kind of reminds them, okay, what do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And then they didn't lose a game after that. So I, I think even as even a bad moment like the Pittsburgh game and then the Raiders game before that, those made the Super Bowl run possible. It was just, you know, it's not a team that you're going to say is – uh, among the top 10, top 20 world champions of all time. But it's one that uh, is going to be remembered fondly. I think it'll be remembered in the same way as the 02 Bucks and the 2000 Ravens, which is pretty good company. Is it, uh, is it the best defense you've ever seen? Or is, I mean, is it, it's, I know it's hard to quantify that and to qualify them both, but I've seen all those defenses. You know, I was alive for the 85 mm -hmm. Bears. I was five, but I was still there. You know, I was yeah. one of those things. Is it the is it the best defense you've covered? Is it the best you know where would where would you rank them in that sort of because you have the eighty five Bears in the two thousand Ravens yeah. the O two Bucks and then I feel like the, the two thousand fifteen Broncos team you can put in that conversation definitely in that conversation I would say the eighty five Bears it was a they were a perfect storm and the one actually that I've seen film of them I didn't watch every game it was the year I was born. The 76 Steelers is probably the standard. I Even though I didn't see them firsthand when it was happening, I've gone back and, and watched some of the old games from that year. But again, you also have to look at the era that was in. That was kind of the, that was the dead ball era of the NFL. So I, I'd say the 85 Bears, and then I'll probably say the 2000 Ravens because at times that offense was terrible and then – but defensively, you just had a galaxy of stars over on that side of the ball, and they were dominant. They, they were overwhelmingly dominant at times, and I think Broncos fans remember that wild card game when uh, uh, the Ravens won. I don't think you want to remember it on, on New Year's Eve of 2000, but it was – I'm. it didn't help that Gus Perrot was starting in place of Brian Greasy and everyone for, you know, 
everyone has to remember Brian Greasy had a really good year that year when he was healthy. The problem was he had trouble staying healthy. And then I would say the Broncos, and then I would say the uh, the, o- the O2 Bucks uh, behind the Broncos. And it's not that the O2 Bucks had a substandard defense. That was, a, I mean, all, you're you're choosing between right. It's hair splitting, right? Here. It's yeah. hair splitting. Yeah, you can't go wrong with any of these units. But watching the Bucks closely in that era, I think the best defense they had was. Uh, Probably around I, I, the defense I thought that really carried them. It was the '99 team when they lost to the Rams in the NFC Championship game, but held the Rams to a, that high-powered, greatest show on turf to 11 points. Very nearly got out of uh, got out of the uh, then Trans World Dome with a 6-5 NFC Championship game win. Uh, there's not many teams that could have had a chance to pull that one off. There's a question. There's a question that I asked your co-host, Ryan Edwards. And mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, just because you, you along with Jim Sakamano, are two of the walking Broncos encyclopedias that I'm fortunate enough to, to talk to and, and, and talk about Broncos with. Who do you think are or is the most undervalued, underappreciated member of the Broncos of all time? Ooh. Good question. Do you, do you want to know what Ian's answer to this question is, or or do you no, want to? No, I want to. I want to answer, and then I want to know his right. answer. Um, I'm going to give you two names: Steve Foley and Carl Mecklenburg. And Mecklenburg, even though I think he's appreciated by Broncos fans, to me, Carl Mecklenburg is a Hall of Famer because they're there's no comp for Carl Mecklenburg because he was so versatile. And that's the problem in evaluating him for the Hall of Fame. But nobody could do as many things on the front seven as well as he could. And that's why I hope he is at least a finalist next year. I would love, but his case is going to be interesting when he starts getting into the seniors committee because I, th- I know Jeff Legwald, for one, is really, really an admirer of how unique Mecklenburg was. And then Steve Foley, I mean, he's the all-time interception leader in Broncos history, and he's not in the ring of fame. And it's a tough choice because I think, you know, you've got, you can say Al Wilson's an underappreciated all-time Bronco. Trevor Price, who we had on our air this week, he's been overlooked a little bit too. Yeah, is Okay, so Ian and I had this discussion before we came on. Um, actually, you know what, let me give you who Ian's underappreciated Bronco is. Undervalued, it, undervalued, or undervalued, or, or undervalued, and it's, it's the same. It's the same logic behind uh, Mesa's pick for for Mech, which I like. It's Lyle Alzado, which is is one that I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's a good choice because he is pretty essential to what that Orange Crush was back in the nineteen seventies, and. Really, in, in some ways, the Orange Crush, it wasn't the same after he, after he left. Yeah, it was a different, it was a different defense. Yeah, it wasn't the same. So, yeah, I, I think Alzado's an awesome choice there. So and then the other the other pick I had was, was Dennis. Ooh, and the thing with Dennis Smith, I mean, Steve Atwater will tell you that 
the two of them were basically equals. And, and Atwater learned a lot from Dennis Smith. Yep. Yeah, that tandem, that's, that safety tandem of, of Smith and Atwater, I mean, how do you prepare for that as an offense? I mean, that had to be one of those one of those major headaches for offensive coordinators to, to look at look at that defense and go, not only do we have to deal with Mecklenburg and, and Fletcher, and the, but we also have Dennis Smith and, and Steve Atwater in the in the defensive backfield. Like that that had to be a, a big headache for a lot of offensive coordinators. Yeah, Wade, Wade Phillips. You look back at that late '80s, early '90s defense, and he had a lot to work with, and and he did a great job with it. And you know, a what if I have on the Broncos is a what if you could have had that. 93 offense with say the 89 or 91 or 92 defense that Wade coordinated. Of course, when Wade became the head coach, he handed the coordinator reins to Charlie Waters. And it's funny, like if you ever bring up Charlie Waters to any of the guys that were around back then, you tend to get a pained look from them (laughs) because it's not that they didn't like Charlie at all. I mean, everyone seemed to like him, but as a defensive coordinator, the poor guy was just in over his head. Coaching is important. Yeah. Speaking of coaching, why isn't Dan Reeves in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? That's a question I ask often because, and this, this is where I say, okay, I don't believe there's an anti-Broncos bias, but I do believe there's there's a geographic bias because you have two other coaches that were in the Super Bowl four times and lost them all four as head coaches. And they're in the Hall of Fame, Bud Grant and Marv Levy. And Dan Reeves is not. And Dan Reeves also has the distinction of taking two different teams to to Super Bowl. You know, he, he of course, took the Broncos to three of them here. And then uh, the getting Atlanta to a Super Bowl in 98, even though they obviously lost the Broncos, that was still a pretty amazing accomplishment for a couple of reasons. Number one – it was just so out of nowhere uh, getting that team all the way to the Super Bowl, beating an all-time team like the Minnesota Vikings in 98 to get there. Uh, that means you're no slouch. If you, could, if you can go into Minnesota in 98, basically play a perfect game in order to win and you pull it off, yeah, it took, it took Gary Anderson finally missing a kick to kind of make that possible, but you know they were right there to capitalize on it and – they deserve a tip of the a tip of the cap, certainly. The other thing is, Atlanta, for the longest time, was one of the most mismanaged franchises in the NFL. Uh, Rankin Smith, and he had died a year before, and then his son Taylor Smith was running the team. But that was a club that, until Arthur Blank became owner, that was a club that, on the whole did not know what it was doing. Now, I think Dan Reeves did a lot to really upgrade the professionalism of the Falcons as an organization. Getting them to the Super Bowl was an exa- was basically the, the major accomplishment out of that. But I, I think he deserves more credit for taking a team that was just utterly dysfunctional. You know, the Falcons, until Dan Reeves, their most successful coach was Lehman Bennett. And he took them to the playoffs three times in five years, and they fi- and including his last season. And they fired him after making the playoffs because he, they said, well, we've reached a plateau. And, of course, the Falcons end up hiring Dan Henning, and they don't go back to the playoffs for, for eight years. So 
that's the kind of organization you're dealing with when you're working with the Atlanta Falcons uh, when Dan Reeves was there. And getting that team, that club to a Super Bowl, I think that's a signature accomplishment. And then on top of what he did in Denver and also winning playoff, hey, he won a playoff game with the Giants, got them to the postseason as well. I think he's got a Hall of Fame resume. Yeah, he does, but he's got that Denver sitting there on him. That's gonna Atlanta doesn't help either. No, it doesn't. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he really, he really picked the wrong teams. <laughs> I mean, Atlanta's on the east. Georgia's on the east coast, technically, but that's not what we think of. We think of east coast. We tend to think basically Boston to Washington. Right. That's we, it. Yeah, you get past that. You're that's not the east coast. That's the south. South's a different animal, that's for sure. Yeah. Southwest, <laughs> who cares about them? You know, it's you. Your geographic point is interesting, though, because I would point to teams like Kansas City and Minnesota, who mm-hmm. have, I don't know, way too many Hall of Famers. In Kansas my opinion. City, especially. I mean, what have they done? How many Super Bowls have they won? Yet they have all these Hall of Famers that accomplished what? You know, it's it's one of those things that drives me nuts about the the Hall of Fame. Kansas City has had this habit of getting guys for a few years, so just long enough to call them Chiefs. Uh, Willie Rofe is a great example. Um, Marcus Allen, the fact because he was a Chief for five years, I mean, I, I kind of consider the standard about to be four years for being able to say, okay, you can count that guy. And they had Marcus Allen for five years, and some of those were, were excellent years. Uh, better than most of the years that he had in Oakland. So, I mean, it's a legitimate claim uh, for the Chiefs. But they, they have a fair amount of those guys. And then I think the other thing is that what helps the Chiefs and helps the Vikings is that they were successful in the 60s and into the, into the, the 70s. The Vikings actually had their run through most of the 70s. And it just seems like that it's easier to get guys in from those eras than it has been from uh, the last few decades. And I think that's one of the things that helps them. Because you look at those 60s Chiefs teams, and they're loaded with Hall of Famers. The, the 70s Vikings, same thing, loaded with Hall of Famers. Doesn't mean that they were any better than, say, the Broncos of the 80s or 90s. I think they just had, the, the, I think they just had uh, guys at the right time. And hopefully it'll be corrected. Look, I'm expecting Champ Bailey to be a Hall of Famer next year. I hope that Carl Mecklenburg and Steve Atwater can at least be finalists next year. And then the big hope in these parts is that uh, the seniors or the, the contributors subcommittee, pardon, will nominate Pat Bowen. And I, I would guess that's going to happen. We've had a few Hall of Fame voters on our show, first and 10 at 10, and they've been pretty unanimous in saying they think it's probably Pat Bowen's time this year. So hopefully that'll come to pass and we'll have that announcement uh, in a month or so. In terms of the seniors, is there any any hope for Gratishar or Wright? Uh, there's some hope. I know. Uh, I know Jeff Legwald. He's pushed Louis Wright a few times. I think. I think he's. He feels like there might be more traction with Louis Wright than Randy Gratishar. And look, I think they both should be in. Uh, Gratishar. I think you look at his career, and it stacks up well with Harry Carson. Harry Carson played in New York. Randy Gratishar played in Denver. Um, there you go. That, that's that, that, that's one, I think, pretty clear example of uh, the mountain time zone, so to speak, being overlooked 
when it comes to talking about the Hall of Fame. Louis Wright, I think the thing with him is he's one of those guys, along with Mel Blunt, that physically changed the possibility of what cornerbacks could do. And he, he was a precursor to he was a precursor to the to the big long cornerbacks that we've seen over the last three decades. And uh, as a result, he's one of those guys that when you're writing the history of football, you have to mention Louis Wright. Now, I think there there could be some momentum for him. We'll see. But uh, you know, the, the scene the, to me, the seniors committee, it's like the the regular committee right now. There are too many qualified candidates. That's why. I mean, I've suggested this. I want to see at least once a decade they increase the cl- the Hall of Fame class to 17. That was the size of the original class in 63. And I think every so often having a bigger class like that would basically ease the backlog. Because while we're talking about guys, I know that you can go to several other franchises and find uh, players that should be in the Hall of Fame. I think right now you've got too many qualified candidates for too few spots on an annual basis. And so just doing something to ease the backlog a little bit, I think would help tremendously. Well, yeah. speaking of that, just look at the Packers with Jerry Kramer. I mean, he, he yeah. finally got his due this year and we'll, we'll finally get inducted in, in August. So, and he's interesting because he's an offensive lineman that had a defining moment that a lot of people knew about, and that's rare for an O lineman. And yet he still had to wait, you know, nearly half a century. Yeah before he got in from his retirement, before he got in the Hall of Fame. And that's why I look at a guy, I could say Steve Atwater. He's a guy who had a defining moment. Most safeties don't have defining moments, defining plays like Steve Atwater did. But he has that one play that you can, you remember. I mean, a lot of safeties, as great as they are, maybe you don't remember like one specific play. It's not in the football zeitgeist. But Steve Atwater's hit on Christian Okoye is. Zeitgeist, that's a big word for our fan base here. It's, I like it, but it's a, it may, may have gone over people's heads. That's like uh, the football catalog, you know, and the, and the backstory of the of the yeah. history. You know, you, you bring up an interesting point, though, and you talk about and Ian talks about it all the time, writing the history of the NFL. I feel like the Hall of Fame is doing a disservice to the game because if you look at what a Hall of Fame is, it's really a museum that celebrates the greatness of the game. And... When you leave guys out like Steve Atwater, like you know, like Carl Mecklenburg, like guys that that have been such a big part of the game, you're you're hurting the you're hurting the the history of the game. At least that's the way I see it. And you know, as I'm a historian. I, I I love history. I teach history. So I think we should be honoring everything. But at the end of the day, if you look at like the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, some of it's a little bit iffy and whatnot. But it's it's the history of the game, and that's what's important about it. And we miss so much of that with the with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I think. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing with baseball, um, you've you have you have guys that tend to have longer careers. Now you may have just as many guys that actually are coming through and playing Major League Baseball at some point as the NFL, but you you have, you have guys with longer careers, and it seems like it's been a little bit easier for them to kind of. Uh, quantify and also it's the nature of baseball as well right. it's so statistical that you can point to a guy and say well you know he has this number he's the you know he's this many wins above replacement he's you know among he's you know second best all time among switch hitting third baseman there are so many things that you can quantify in baseball and i think beyond wide receiver running back quarterback and even to a lesser degree tight end 
we struggle with that in football. And, and on defense, if you're a pass rusher, you have sacks, but that doesn't necessarily help you if you're a defensive tackle, for example. So I think that there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of how they evaluate people and how they, how they select people. You know, that I'm not saying that they should kick the media out. I actually think they should have more media and more former players and more former coaches involved. I mean, uh, baseball, for its Hall of Fame, you know, they're, they have a selection group of hundreds right. involved with it. And also, you're basically you're, – you're filling it out and then you're mailing it in. So you don't have the presentation. You don't have, you know, one guy – or one or, or one lady making the presentation that's able that can swing some voters. It's basically all about what the data in front of you, what you you know, and then you're making an evaluation from there. I think that the foot, Pro Football Hall of Fame would be better served by having a larger group of selectors and not having the in-person presentations than the way it is right now, and then trusting that you know the people that cover it. Now that they're going to do their homework, they're going to do their research, they're going to be earnest in their selection. I think then you'd have a better class, better classes. The other thing I think I want to see is just more more people. Baseball, there have been years where baseball did not select anybody. Yeah, that's true. But there have been some. I mean, but then you look at this year. You've you know this year it's it's four guys from the writers and two guys from the veterans committee, uh, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell. So. It's a nice it, – it, this year it's stacked. It's a good some year, years, yeah. Some years it's not. And I think football will be wise to kind of go to that. Don't put an artificial cap on it in a given year, which which means what happens, guys, is that you'll have players in that room that have enough of the vote that have 80%. But because you have a cap on that, you end up taking just the highest percentages in the room. And I think that, and I think that artificial cap, I think that's that that's a poor way to go about. It. If let's say you have a year where twelve people, where twelve, where twelve people, players, contributors, coaches get eighty percent, then induct twelve. Who cares? Just tell the guys giving the speeches to keep it short. <laughs> just, just to you know, to short speeches, short speeches. They need yep. to get shorter anyway. Last yeah. last year's ceremony was was brutal. I mean, Brandon Cristal, uh, who does the one to three shift on our station. He happened to be working behind the, the, the glass that night. Cause we took the hall of fame broadcast live on our air and ran it. And he, he'll still tell you about how interminable it was. Just waiting for a 10. The only positive I think of Terrell Owens, not giving the speech in Canton is that he shortened the ceremony. That, that does help. You know, the other thing I'll add to that, and this is one that Ian and I have talked about before as well, transparency in voting. Uh, I love that baseball has, has gone to I was actually going to gonna bring that up. Yeah, so. I knew you were. So I want to know who you voted for because I want to know why you voted for him. And if, if there's a clear bias against a guy because you didn't like the way he didn't take interviews from you uh, or didn't do interviews with you because he didn't like the way you covered him, I want to know that that's why you're not voting for him. And you can tell those things by looking at a guy's ballot and saying, well, he always had bad things to say about him anyway, and so the guy never gave him interviews, so he didn't vote for him. It, it, it sort of it makes it so that the voters are more responsible for their mm-hmm. own votes. Yeah, and you know what? I think that kind of media thing works against a guy like Tommy Nalen. Yeah, because he didn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. No question he was a quality center and you know, probably is – at the level where he should be at least a finalist at some point, but 
know, it, it would be. I would like to see more transparency. I agree. I would like to know who the ballots are. I, I, ballots are being cast for. I think what you, you have a little bit of a. Um, in, in any case, this happens in a lot of areas. You sometimes have a little fuddy-duddy mentality that we've always done it this way, and this is how it should be. Why can't it be better? I think the Hall of Fame, even though it's only a couple of guys, I think the Hall of Fame selection room is better because you've got Dan Fouts and James Lofton in there, two guys who are Hall of Famers but also are media. I, I'd like to see more guys that kind of have that crossover like that in the selection process. I think that's a place to start. And the, the bigger thing, though, is I'd like to see more than one person per market. I think that's, I think that's a little absurd. There's there's a lot of qualified people, qualified minds who could be a part of this that aren't. Well, I think we've taken up enough of your time, Mace. But this has been all right. <laughs> this has been an, an awesome conversation, and I, I I can't speak for all the listeners, but I can speak for Adam and me that we definitely want to have you back on because it's been a pleasure, man. Just to listen to you talk, and, and it's opened my eyes to what to look for come camp. So we definitely appreciate it. Hey, it's like the Bob said in office space. Pleasure's all on this side of the table. <laughs> well, we enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, mate. My pleasure. You've been listening to Mile High Report Radio. Get involved in the discussion at milehighreport.com. And as always, go Broncos. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.